0: This is Stories from Palestine podcast. My name is Crystal and I live with my Palestinian husband and two children in Beit Safafa between Jerusalem and Bethlehem. I studied the tour guide program at the Bethlehem Bible College and I recently graduated. Listen to weekly new episodes about the history, cultural heritage, and reality of life in Palestine. Hello everyone, this is the second episode of this summer's series of short episodes that I'm recording during my holidays in the Netherlands where I'm visiting my family and friends and I'm generally still enjoying this beautiful summer break. As I explained last week, it's a bit hard for me to coordinate interviews and do all the editing work that comes with doing interviews, because I'm alone with my kids and they don't have school here, so I decided to produce short episodes that I can record myself. And this week, I want to share with you my experience and knowledge about a place that we visited in spring in Palestine this year, and I found it really fascinating, especially because I am... Obsessed with caves and the history of caves in Palestine, which you may have heard me speaking about in one of the very first podcast episodes that I recorded last year in August. If you haven't heard it yet, you can find it if you search for the title This Is What Shaped Palestine. It's episode two of season one. The site I want to tell you about is located to the west of the city of Hebron but it's on the western side of the Green Line or the Armistice Line, so it's in current-day Israel. I remember that the first time we visited, we drove there from Bethlehem, and it was a Saturday, so that is Shabbat for the Jewish people, and that means that there is nearly no traffic, especially on the road that we took, because we came from a road that passes a settlement, and then we had to cross one of the military checkpoints to get out of the military-occupied West Bank, to go into the other part of Palestine that is now considered the State of Israel. And the soldiers stopped us, and he checked the trunk of the car and then asked us some questions and where we were going. So I said we were going to Beit Jibrin, And she looked like she had no idea where that was, which shows how little some of these Israeli soldiers actually know about the land. Especially because this is a UNESCO World Heritage Site since 2014. And the name of the site on the UNESCO World Heritage List is The Caves of Marisha and Bey a microcosm of land of caves. Well, you can imagine that for somebody like me who loves caves and the history of caves, this was a fantastic place to visit. If you go there, then the name of the archaeological site is Tel Marisha. And in previous episodes, I explained that a Tel is a man-made mound of superimposed civilizations. What does it mean? It means that it looks like a natural hill, but in fact, it is layer on layer of previous towns and cities that are now archaeological sites to be excavated, to learn about the history of that particular place. So it's called Tel Marisha, and Marisha is Hebrew, and scholars think that the name may be related to a Hebrew word for head, being Rosh, and that they would have chosen this because the hilltop was overlooking the area, like the head on the body is overlooking everything. And the area is beautiful it's on the western part of the mountain ridge so it's an area with rolling hills it's quite green lots of vegetation and today it is part of a national park under the israeli national parks authorities so this means that if you want to visit you have to make a reservation online and you pay an entrance fee the site has organized parking it has restrooms and then you receive a brochure with information about the history and the different caves that you visit. I have to admit that it's been difficult for me to visit national parks under the Israeli National Parks Authority, because I don't think that people should be paying money to the Israeli government for visiting sites that are Palestinian. And I think that everybody should make their own decisions if they want to do that, But now that I live in Palestine and that I study the history, I decided that there are not many options for me to take my children, to learn about the history and to see beautiful places other than visiting these parks. Because almost all of the historical and archaeological sites are under the Israeli parks authority. But when you visit this area you will be surprised and excited by the incredible amount of caves that exist here. So the highlights of your visit would be visiting these caves, but also the only Roman amphitheater that you can visit in the whole country. There is a crusader church There is an ancient olive press and I will talk about all of these in more detail. But first let's start with a little history of this place. So Marisha was mentioned in the Bible. It was mentioned as one of the towns that were fortified during the Iron Age period. We're talking about 925 before Christ. They were fortified by a king that is mentioned regularly in the Bible called King Rehoboam. And King Rehoboam built several fortifications around Jerusalem and around the area of Judea that was the area that he controlled. Now, Marisha as a town suffered from various attacks, attacks by, for example, the Assyrians and the Babylonians, And especially the Babylonians emptied the area of its local people. They were taken and they were exiled to Babylonia. And after the area was depopulated, the Edomians moved in. They came from the south, from the Nakab, from the desert, and the area there became known as Edomia. And we know that Herod the Great, the client king under the Roman rulers, who ruled just at the time when Jesus was born, was from Idumia. And some scholars even suggest that he was from here, from Marisha. We know that his father, whose name was Antipater, was forced to become Jewish. This was in the time of a Jewish leader called John Hyrcanus, and it is the only time in history that we know of forced conversions to Judaism. And Herod the Great's father was Edomian and his mother was Nabatian. So he was actually Arab, forced into the Jewish religion. And Herod the Great built a whole lot of big buildings in the country that you can still visit until today, at least as archaeological sites. Later, Marisha, the town, became an important base... For the Jewish rebels when they were fighting against the Romans. They had a revolt, it was called the Maccabean revolt, and they used Marisha as one of the places where they could hide. Imagine there were all these caves that could be connected with tunnels and that would be perfect places for them to fight from and to hide from the Romans. So Marisha was the central city of Idumia, And then Later, during the Persian and Hellenistic period, uh, that's the Greek period, we're talking about the time between the 6th century before Christ and the 1st century before Christ, marisha was one of the most important towns. And after Alexander the Great conquered the land, even Phoenicians from the north, from Tyre and from Sidon on the coast north of Haifa came down to live in Marisha. They were well-known traders and seafarers at that time, and they came down. and It seems that they traded in slaves from this place, from Marisha. Marisha, as a town, was destroyed in forty before Christ. It was destroyed by the Parthians, and some scholars suggest that the Parthians actually destroyed it because it was the place where Herod the Great came from. The Parthians, they were having a growing empire. It was growing out from what is now northern Iran, growing westwards. And they were really in good terms with the Hellenistic rulers of the area. And Antigonus, the ruler, the Hellenistic ruler, was an enemy of Herod. And so it seems that maybe this played a role in the destruction of Marisha. After it was destroyed, the important commercial role of Marisha passed on to a nearby town. And the nearby town was called Beit Guvrin. And the name Beit Guvrin comes from the Aramaic for house of the strong man, Beit Gabra. And the Palestinian town of Beit Jabrin that was depopulated in 1948 and that was in the same area, also in Arabic means the house of the powerful. But back in history, Beit Juvrin received a special privilege from the Romans, from the emperor Septimius Cerverus, and he gave it in the year 200 after Christ, the Ius Italicum. And that meant that it was treated as if it was Italy. So the people who lived there had Roman citizenship. They were exempted from certain land taxes and they were protected by the Roman law. And he, Septimius Severus, called it the city of the free, Eleutheropolis. It's actually a Greek name, but the Greek language was still the common official language at that time. And this name, Eleutheropolis, we can find it on the Madaba map. And I've mentioned the Madaba map a couple of times before. The Madaba map is a mosaic map that was found in a church in Jordan, in current-day Jordan. And on this map, dating back from the Byzantine time, you can find most of the important places in Palestine, including the most important buildings. So it was mentioned on that map. And the last time that the city is mentioned in a document in history is in 570 AD by the Piacenza pilgrim. These are sources that when you start studying the history of Palestine, you will find them regularly, especially certain documents by pilgrims who visited in the early ages, in the early stages of history. These are very important to know more about the history of that time. So from the Roman and Byzantine time, you can still see today the Oval Amphitheater. And it is really special because there are only three amphitheaters in the region. And we have to understand that the amphitheater is not the same as the Roman theater, because the amphitheater is a circle or an oval, but is completely closed. So the audience could watch spectacles like sports events or gladiator events, and they could see it from all sides while the Roman theater is a half circle, a semicircle, and it had a stage on the other end where they would have theater performances. Now, the other two amphitheaters that you can find in Palestine are in Caesarea on the coast. The building was officially built as a hippodrome for horse racing, It was built by Herod the Great, but in the 2nd century, it was changed into an amphitheater. And the other one you can still visit is in Beit Shan, which is a historical Bisan. And this is also a fully circled amphitheater. So the amphitheater in Beit Jubrin is the only one that is really open to public. You can walk around and visit it. It was big, it had about 3,500 seats around the arena. And underneath, there was a space for the wild animals. That's where they kept the wild animals before they went out in these gladiator events. And that's where they would fight with people. Sometimes these were prisoners or slaves that had to fight these wild animals. But it was forbidden from the 4th century onwards. There was an emperor called Arkadois and he stopped these gladiatorial displays and then it became a marketplace. We jump a little bit in the time and in the crusaders' time, when they came to the region, they called the area Beit Gebelin. This is how you can find it on the crusader maps. It was also sometimes known as Beit Jibril, and that is a mention after the Archangel Gabriel, that is in Arabic Jibril. The Crusaders renovated the church they found there. It was the St. Anna Church that was already built in the Byzantine time. And today, when you visit, you can still see the beautiful apse of the church that is otherwise in ruins. And it is situated between the hills, a little bit away from the national park's center, I would say. And the Arabs who moved into the area later, they called it Sanda Hanna, after the St. Anna Church. And today, the Palestinians still call the archaeological site of Tel Marisha Tel Sanda Hanna. The Crusaders didn't only renovate the church, they also set up a fortress. And as in many other places in Palestine, the Crusader Tower became the center of a new village that grew around it. The same happened in the village where I live, in Beit Safafa. So the village grew around the old Crusader Tower, and this village here became known as Beit Jibrin. Beit Jibrin had a total land area, of about 50 square kilometers. Out of the 50 square kilometers, only 0.3 square kilometers was populated. All the rest of it was farmland. And Beit was depopulated in 1948 during the Nakba, and the Palestinians were forced to leave their homes by the Zionist militias, and they ended up in the refugee camps of Fawar, in the Hebron district and in the Beit Jibrin camp in Bethlehem, which is also known as Aza camp because the biggest family is named Aza. So these refugees, they live until today very close to the town that they were displaced from, but they have never been allowed to return. And since May 1949, a kibbutz started growing on the land of Beit Jibrin, and it's called Beit Guvrin, and it's there until today. So now Beit and the whole area of Tel Marisha fall under the Israeli National Park authorities. And it is UNESCO World Heritage because of the caves. And the caves are magnificent. So let me tell you something about the caves, because that is what you would see when you visit the site These caves are not the same as the caves in the mountain ridge that I've described in previous episodes, where it was a natural process in the limestone, weathering down because of the rain and the wind. And this is not a natural process. Here, the caves are dug out. And what happened is that the upper layer here of the soil is very, very hard. This upper layer is called nari. And underneath this very hard layer, there is soft chalk. So, what the people did more than 2000 years ago is they opened a hole into this hard upper layer, into this nari, and they started digging down towards the soft chalk. Usually, they would leave one square column in the middle as a central block, and then they would start digging around it. And this kind of digging turned the cave into a bell-shaped cave. And then later the top entrance would be blocked and they would make an entrance to the cave from the side by a staircase. In this way, over 3,500 caves have been made and found. Maybe there are more, but they found 3,500 caves. Incredible. So it seems that initially these excavations were really used as quarries. They used the stone for building and also for road building. But they realized that they could use these caves. They could use them for many different purposes. Imagine, they could use them to store water, for example. They could use them to store grains. They could use them to store any kind of products, olive oil, for example. Even they found a lot of caves that gave house to complete olive oil presses. They found that they were used as stables for animals. They found that they were used as a bath house and also places of religious worship. And outside the village a bit further, there were burial caves where people were buried. And very interesting also is the columbarium where they had little niches, many, many little niches dug out into the soft chalk of the cave for pigeons. Yeah, for the birds. The pigeon would nest in one of these niches and they used these doves for their meat, for the eggs, and also their poo could be collected down in the cave and be used as fertilizer for agriculture and some of these are super big super large caves some of them even have vaulted arches and several supporting pillars it's like a city under a city and some of the most known caves that you can visit I will mention them now there is one cave that is called the Polish cave It has nothing much to do with Poland, but they found an inscription in the cave on the central column where it said Warsaw, Poland, 1943. And then there was an eagle depicted. So this was left by Polish soldiers who were stationed in the area in the Second World War. And the cave is named the Polish cave because of that. But the use of this cave was a columbarium for the pigeons. There are in this Polish cave, there are over 2,000 niches for pigeons. There's another one, even bigger. It is known as a souk. It's a columbarium cave, the largest and best designed cave with rectangular holes, and it's built in a cross shape. So you have one vertical and two horizontal arms. And this cave was in use for pigeons until the 2nd century AD. And then later on, it was actually also used to store goods. There's another cave, very interesting. It's functioned as a bathtub, and it was probably used since the Hellenistic period, because in that time, there was a special purification method among the Edomians, where you had two small chambers next to each other. They were divided by a wall in the cave And there was one hole in the wall. So one person could sit in one part and the other one would put his arm through the hole and pour water over the person who was bathing without being able to see that person giving him or her some privacy. And they found 20 of such bathing caves. Close to this bathing cave, there is another very impressive cave. It's the oil press. It's one of 20 caves that they found where they used to press olive oil. And you can see in this cave how they used to crush and squeeze the olives by using a big wooden beam. The big wooden beam was fixed into the wall of the cave. And on the other side, they would hang heavy stones that would pull down the beam and under it, they would put the baskets with the olive pulp placed on a stone vat where they could collect the olive oil that was squeezed out from the olive pulp. And then next to this olive press room, there are two other rooms. And in between, if you walk from one to the other room, and we're still down below the earth, eh? we're all the time going down the stairs and we're under the soil, under the surface... And in between, there is a niche and this is above the entrance to the connecting door where you see a statue of the Edomian goddess Kos and she was there to bless the harvest. Other uses for caves were, for example, as water cisterns. They would collect the rainwater and these caves, they have plastered walls. Otherwise, the water would definitely disappear in the chalk. So they would plaster the walls to use it as a rainwater cistern. And one of the most spectacular and interesting caves is called the Sidonian cave. This is a burial cave, and it has 25 burial places. So inside, there are niches that are dug into the cave's wall. These were called in Hebrew, kochim, and the body would be laid there in this niche. And after it was decomposed, the body, they would collect the bones and then they would gather them in a box. And this box is called an ossuary. And this is how they used to bury people in the first century before until the first century after Christ. The name of this particular burial cave is named after the Sidonian colony that was established here. So Sidon was north of Haifa, in today's Lebanon, and in the 2nd century BC, the Ptolemies brought people from Sidon here to establish slave trade. And the leader of this Sidonian community was called Apollophanes. He was the son of Semaios. And in this cave, he had his family tomb, and on the tomb of Apollophanes, there is an inscription that mentions the name Marisha. So this inscription is very important for scholars to officially identify this location, this site, as Marisha. Inside this cave, the burial cave, we see beautiful stucco paintings on the coating plaster some of them are reconstructed and they are very clear and bright the colors are very beautiful and what they depicted was for example animals such as the hippo and the crocodile and there's a lion with the head of a man and the griffin a more mythological figure the elephant the rhino the gazelle bull giraffe There's even a horseman blowing on his trumpet and then fighting with a leopard. A lot of beautiful and interesting depictions. In another part of the cave, they depicted mainly musicians. So this cave is also called the Cave of the Musicians. We do see that many of the faces of these old stuccos have been damaged and scratched. And according to some researchers who spoke to the sheikh of Beit the Muslim sheikh. This was done by religious Muslims who believe that illustrations of faces are against the rules of their religion. It seems that the quarrying here continued to happen in the Byzantine time and even throughout the Muslim times. And it seems that stones from here have been used for cities that were built on the coastal plains and also for the houses of Bejibrin itself. If we look in a three kilometers radius around Bejibrin, then we find 800 of these quarry pits to quarry for stone, for chalk. And these were dating from the 6th until the 10th century AD. So these are from later date than the caves that were already dug from the 2nd century before Christ. The incredible history of caves in Palestine, the incredible amount of caves either dug out or by a natural process. That is What I wanted to share with you about the archaeological site of Tel Marisha or Tel Sandahana, or better known among Palestinians as Beit Jibrin. In the future, if you travel to Palestine and you want to organize a tour to visit this site, you know how to reach me. And if you don't know how to reach me, just go to the show notes of the podcast and you can find a link to all social media there, or you can check out the website storiesfrompalestine.info. I usually write a blog post or I upload the full transcript of episodes there. I also share photos on the website and on social media. And I post unique content only on the Ko-fi page, which is the platform where you can help me to sustain the podcast with your donation. Thank you for listening. Feel free to tell others about the podcast and to share episodes on social media. And I hope you will tune in again next week.